Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. It looks like the world of travel in 2020 will end the way it began, with a fair share of disruption. But there are some glimmers of hope. I'll check in with Gene Sloan, who covers the cruise industry for the Point Scout. 
Dean was a passenger on the first ship to sail in the Caribbean, and he'll let us know what happened when a passenger and then six others tested positive for COVID-19. Then, Chris Woodyard from USA Today with a report on COVID-19 around the world and travel restrictions and politicizing mask wearing, why there needs to be a federal rule requiring passengers to wear masks on planes. And then I'll chat with Scott McCartney, travel editor of the Wall Street Journal, about what a new president might mean for the travel industry, as well as your travel plans. First up, the post-cruise report from Gene Sloan. My next guest, one of our regulars on the show, didn't expect them to be on the show this week for reasons that he will gladly explain. Uh, About 10 days ago, he sent me an email saying he was about to be on one of the very first cruises, if not the first cruise, sailing in the Caribbean from Barbados to a number of uh, island countries in the Caribbean. And he did on the Sea Dream 1. Uh, I'm going to let him tell the rest of the story because let's just say that Gene Sloan is now talking to us from his self-quarantining back in the United States. Hey, Gene. Hey there. Yes, that's it. I am, I am locked down in a bedroom. Uh, with uh, my wife delivering food outside my door. So uh, it's good to actually talk to somebody at least. I'm so glad I could help you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you were there to report on the first cruise with, with what seemed to be some rigorous testing procedures and some protocols and behavioral regimes on board the Sea Dream 1. There were only 53 passengers and 66 crew. You were one of the passengers. Yeah, that's it. I went down there, of course, not expecting the story that that it turned out to be, but um, to write about what this first cruise was going to be like. It, this was a big deal cruise for the industry because it was the very first one in the Caribbean all the way back to March was the last departure. And it, it's a small line, Sea Dream, very small ship, but they were trying to get back up and started. Um, and uh, so I went down there like other passengers. I got on board first few days went great. It was um, actually much more normal feeling than I had expected with all the sort of precautions and, you know, the social distancing and all the things that cruise lines are implementing. Um, and then four days into the trip, I was uh, just heading back to my cabin and the captain came over to the loudspeaker and said somebody had started to feel sick and had called the doctor, been quickly tested and tested positive. And at that point, you remained in your cabin. Yeah. So, and that was it. And they, you know, like all lines, they've they've been, uh, and luckily had come up with a plan for this kind of thing. Of course, they didn't expect it to happen, but uh, they immediately told us to go back to our cabins and said we were going to isolate. And that was it. That was uh, Wednesday, and then I never saw the outside of my door for the next four days. As as did. The whole ship locked down. All the passengers on board were quarantined into their cabin, um, and uh, non-essential crew also. Very limited crew stayed out and active. They tested all the crew, came back negative, and then, uh, you know, we kind of went into a very different kind of cruise. I mean, it, it was um, you know delivering food to our doors, trying in a in a very kind of orchestrated, non-contact way, and or we. I should say too, we were at the at that point we had sailed down to St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Um, we were anchored off one of the islands down there when this announcement happened. It nearly turned the ship full speed back to Barbados, and uh, we got in late that night. It was about a ten-hour sail. It was bumpy because they were going so fast, um, and the health authorities came out immediately and started doing their thing. Well, I'm amazed they even let you land based on the fear factor. We saw what happened with Holland America 
earlier this year, being unable to land at any port for a while. But this cruise yeah. started, but Gene, by the way, we're talking to Gene Sloan, who does all the cruise reporting for the points guy. Gene, this ship was supposedly sailing from Barbados to, to a number of islands in the Caribbean and then coming back to its supposedly home port in Barbados. So how many ports did you actually get to? So we ended up at four different islands. And what's interesting here is what they were trying to do with this sailing is create a bubble on the ship. So they were testing extensively before we got on. And the idea was that we were a COVID-free bubble. So when we went to these islands, they purposely did activities. We landed places where there were no people. The idea was we didn't want to interact with the people on the land because we were the ones without COVID and they were the ones who might have it. <laughs> it turned out to be the opposite. But uh, we, we landed mostly in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Um, we would do like little uh, you know, shuttle on a Zodiac to a, an empty beach where there were no people. They had a prearranged with St. Vincent that we could have access to beaches that were uninhabited, in some cases on uninhabited little islands off of the main islands. Uh, eventually, we were supposed to get to Grenada, but that, that of course, didn't happen because that was towards the end of the cruise. Exactly. So here's my, here's my question. The way they were doing the testing was you were tested before you ever got to the ship, and then you were tested before you boarded the ship. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. And uh, and that's why they were so confident. Um, you know, the, the whole cruise industry is trying to figure out a way to get back. And, and what, what most guys are talking about is one test before you go to the ship. What these guys did was, Three days before I flew down there, I had to go to a you know a, a clinic here and get you know the gold standard PCR test they send out to the lab. Tested negative for that. Had to show them that when I got there. And then the day of departure, as I arrived at the pier, they had set up a medical tent and they did another round uh, with testing. They used those Abbott ID Now machines, which can get a test back pretty quick. It's the same machines they use at the White House. Of course, they maybe had some issues there too, but. Uh, so yeah, two two negatives. Every person who got on board that ship had gotten two negatives over a three-day period. So you would think they were doing their homework. Yeah, and I mean, and, and they thought somehow, and this is, you know, this of course points up, I think the lesson of this is no matter how extensive you do the testing in advance it, or, or try to keep the COVID off ships, it's going to get through at times, maybe much, you know, maybe they'll catch most of it, but, uh, you know, somehow one person, maybe they had been exposed just, you know, the day before they had such a low viral load. It didn't, it didn't give a positive, but somehow somebody got on board who had, who was, had some of the virus in their system. And over a few days, it got to the point where they showed symptoms. Now, by the time you got back to Barbados, you'd been on the ship for four or five days. Uh, did any other people test positive? Yes. Yeah, so um, it was interesting. They now they they did have us from the and other lines will do this too. They, they there was a, a social distancing rule for the moment we got on board. So different different groups of people were told to stay stay separate. It mostly did. Um, what happened was first there was one person positive. They started testing everybody on board with the machines the ship had. Then Barbados came on board and started doing its own tests, uh, and is the kind that go out to the lab, uh, the PCR test. Um, and they did start getting more positive. Most of them were in the same family group with the one guy who tested positive the first time. Um, people staying in the in their same cabins together. So it was it was a group of sisters and their husbands, and um, but there also was one other couple that tested positive. Positive. So as of today, uh, well. And, 
it's been now many days, so it's probably where we're going to be. But there were seven passengers out of 53 who were positive. So that's that's more than 10 percent. More than 10 percent. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I see it as it's good and bad. I mean, I, I think uh, um, it did, it, it, as of now, at least it appears it did not spread beyond these two groups. So it's a family of five and, and another couple who um, what I've heard from other passengers I don't. I don't know the couple. I didn't. I didn't interact with the couple. That couple interacted with the family of five. Um, so clearly, it spread on board, um, but it did not spread wildly on board. And they were able now to, to now, now, they, now to the seven to the seven passengers that did test positive. Are they still in Barbados? Yes. So they were all sent to an isolation facility. Barbados has done an incredible job with with COVID. There's there's basically no cases of COVID in Barbados. They're very strict, uh, even to get into Barbados. I would have had to have a COVID test in, within three days of flying, even if I wasn't going on the ship, because wow. that's the Barbados rule, too. Um, and so they, they have very little there, and they've set up a quarantine facility. So they do have people flying in who then test positive, and they quarantine them there. Or in this it. case, people coming off the ship. And they're, yeah, they're, they're going to be there for a while. I guess the question becomes this in the short term, what happens to that particular ship? Are they sailing again, or or they canceled all the cruises? Yeah, uh, so we just found out today that they've canceled all their sailings for the rest of the year. They initially, in the first few days, just canceled this week's cruise. Um, but yeah, it looks like, and I'm, I'm, we'll see what happens in January. So they've canceled everything through January first, and originally had planned to run these Barbados cruises all the way through, I think April. Um, but given what happened, I think it's, it, it may be tough for them to come back too quickly. So here, um, here's the, the bigger question here. We know that the Centers for Disease Control lifted the ban, the no-sale ban, on October 31st. We all know that doesn't mean that the ships are sailing as of November 1. They didn't, and they won't. Uh, there's a very strict protocol and requirement in place for the ships to do a lot of testing to, to basically support, in some cases, 74 separate point uh, renovation and redesign plan, whether it's their ventilation systems or social distancing or even floor plans, uh, boarding procedures, shore excursions, you name it, at every touch point of any kind of trip. So for all intents and purposes, most cruise lines will not be sailing until late January, early February anyway, right? Yeah, you know, and I actually think, um, and, and maybe I'm an outlier here, but I'm thinking we're really not going to see cruising out of, at least out of U.S. ports, and, and I would say most North America, until at least March, or maybe even April. The, uh, the CDC has made this roadmap for them to come back, but there's so many hoops in it. You know, they, uh, there's going to have to be test cruises, and, and there's going to have to be forced testing with a uh, testing system put in place, and, and kind of nailing everything down. There's then there's like a 60-day waiting period while they, they, until they can actually to get the certificate to start. Um, it's yeah. I think it's going to be a long time. Of course, what happened this week doesn't help. Right, and part of that sixty-day period, if I read the rules carefully, is that they're going to do a test cruise with crew only to see if all the systems work. So the crew being essentially uh, the guinea pigs on that. But then certain cruise lines like Royal Caribbean are asking for volunteer cruisers, folks like you and me, if they want to volunteer to be testers sometime in January, right? Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, I wonder how much of that is PR versus uh, it will really happen. Of course, the CDC has a say. The CDC is setting the rules for this, and 
And um, it's unclear who is going to be allowed on these test cruises. I, I suspect what it'll mostly be is uh, employees of the company, friends and family, maybe some travel agents. Hopefully me. I would love to get on board and, and uh, see what the, all the new protocols are like. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see if, you know, just regular people are really let on board. Although they did, they, the Royal Caribbean put out a call and they got, I, I think I read 100,000 is what they're up to now. People, uh, just regular people volunteering say, hey, take me. <laughs> well, you know what? At a certain point, listen, there are a lot of loyal cruisers out there, people who are repeat cruisers who can't wait to get back out. It's the new cruisers that have the problem with perception of thinking that these cruise ships are nothing more than floating Petri dishes. That's the challenge yeah. for the cruise industry to turn them around. Yeah, that's going to be the real issue here. And I think, uh, yeah, and the, the, the repeaters are just, itching to go and uh, in fact it was interesting on the seating seating tip i did we were told to social distance and i did and we did but i would talk to people from a distance i'd say hey why why are you on board you know this covid thing's going on right now like why would you book this they these people were the hardcore cruisers and what was interesting is they weren't necessarily even sea dream cruisers you know i talked to somebody who was a seaborne fan and another person who did norwegian cruise line and they said i'll just take anything i can get to get back on a ship right now and uh, there's a lot of cruisers that are that way. But, you know, of course, the cruise business can't can't stay in business just getting their repeats. They need to constantly be bringing in new people. And um, I think, uh, yeah, that's uh, it's going to be a hard sell for a long time. So how are they going to do it? How do you think they're going to do it? Well, um, it, 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 a couple things are going to happen here. One, one thing is that initially they won't have a huge amount of capacity to fill. So it's more of a long-term issue. Um, so when they do come back, and, and like I said, I'm probably on the, on the far end of when I think they'll come back, but say they start getting some ships in the water by March or April, the big lines, Royal Caribbean Carnival we're talking, they're only going to initially come back with two or three ships. Like Carnival has 23 ships. Maybe they bring two back or three back. They've all said this. Um, they want to do it slow, and, the, and they don't want to have to drop their prices insanely either. So uh, so, you know, they're going to bring back enough that they can feel enough that they can feel confident that, hey, this is going to work, and then slowly add. Also, because there's a huge cost to them to bring the crew back and to get a ship fired up to run. It takes weeks, and it costs a lot of money to launch. So they, they want to do it little by little because they want to make sure it works before they commit to that. Um, so what will happen initially is there's all these hardcore cruisers wanting to get back on ships, but maybe only... 10% or 20% of the ships by, say, by, even by, say, June, maybe we'll only have 30% of all the ships running. You know, wow. It might not be till late next year that we get back to, like, most ships being back at sea. My thanks to Gene. Next up, if the flight attendant tells you to fasten your seatbelt and you refuse, you violate a federal law. Does that apply to mask wearing on planes? Chris Woodyard from USA Today has the latest. Joining me now, an old buddy of mine, we go back years on his days, and he's still there as a great reporter and correspondent for USA Today. Chris Woodyard, how are you, sir? Very good. Thank you, Peter. You know, you and I look at a lot of the same things. We monitor a lot of the same things, and we, we react a lot to the same things when it comes to travel, one of which being, and, and one of that is near and dear to our audience, is for the first time in recent memory, all the algorithms that the airlines use to uh, project demand, uh, you know, who flew it on a, on a November day a year ago, who's going to fly a year from now, and 
what we should price it for this November, all those algorithms have gone out the window because of COVID-19, because there is no demand. They, there's nothing to, to gauge it against. And that means they can't, they can not only project, they can not only not project demand, they can't figure out pricing. And the result, which you've discovered and I've discovered, some very crazy airfares out there. It's been amazing, Peter. Um, you know, I went out on Google Flights and just sort of looked at various city pairs, looking at various dates, even some of the holiday dates. And there are some amazing bargains out there. I mean, it's almost on some of them. It was like if you were paying more than uh, $200 round trip, that was too much on cross-country flights. Exactly. We saw one from Los Angeles to Philadelphia for $45. We saw one from Los Angeles to Austin, Texas for $51. I saw one from New York to L.A. for $109. That's, that's absurd. The cab ride from New York to Kennedy is 75 I always love that. I always thought that, you know, a great airfare is when it costs more to get to the airport on ground transportation than it does to actually pay for the fare. And we're seeing some of those kinds of cases right now. We are. And the thing is, and of course the question that is inevitable is how long is this going to go on? Because if you take a look at how they projected uh, bookings for the fourth quarter, meaning from now till the end of the year and into the first quarter of next year, uh, they're almost non-existent. Um, traditionally and historically, uh, every four years, no matter who's running for president and no matter who wins, it doesn't matter, uh, Americans tend not to travel as much through their own sense of insecurity or, or, in, or uncertainty. They just don't. Every four years, it's like clockwork. So that's already in place. Then it was compounded by COVID-19. And then you see just nothing registering. Um, I'm assuming, based on what I'm seeing, that with very, very few exceptions, these low airfares are going to continue through the first quarter. I'm not sure, Peter. You know, you look at that federal stimulus deal that clicked off on October 1. You know, airlines, in order to get that federal money, needed to run a lot of unprofitable routes all around the country, serve airports that were really unprofitable for them. Without a federal stimulus in place, it's going to be really hard for them to continue that service. And as those, those flights drop, that will give them a little more leverage to raise fares but we both know that the demand is so slack right now, so few people flying, that there's really good reasons to believe that a lot of these really great bargains are going to stay in place here for a while. Yeah, they are. Plus, uh, this year Thanksgiving, not everybody's going back to visit Granny for all the obvious reasons. So it's not like it'll be a, one big you know, surge on, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We will see the TSA screen more people on that Wednesday before Thanksgiving than they're screening today. I get that. But that's not indicative of what the overall market's looking like. Right. But remember, too, some of these city pairs are kind of off limits for, for travelers if they take quarantines into place. You know, um, some of the really great bargains are, as you pointed out, like L.A. to New York, San Francisco to New York. But there's a pretty strong quarantine order in place in New York that looks like it's going to be in place for a while. And that could really trip up travelers if they aren't paying attention to that. Yeah, you're right about that, which leads me to my next item up for bids on the prices, right? The famous opportunity for what they're now calling air bubbles. Why don't you explain? You know, this was something that the airline industry was really trying to get off the ground and was really trying to pin their hopes on. And the idea was 
maybe we can create really safe corridors around the country, really popular air routes that we can make 100% safe. So the idea is that everybody gets tested. You know, we, had, we now have some of these quick tests that are coming into place. Some of them are going to cost as little as $15, which means the airline can actually afford to eat that cost. So in the case of the United States, we were thinking of New York to London, an amazingly thick, popular, and super profitable air route, particularly for what few business travelers are left. If they could get every traveler on on that route to be tested for COVID and come up negative, that could really help improve the confidence that travelers would have to travel again. Now, we're seeing that already on the Hawaii run. San Francisco to Hawaii, you know, a number of air, uh, the state of Hawaii is allowing these quick tests in lieu of quarantine um, for folks that go there. So there is a model for this idea, but the problem is that COVID rates have been rising so quickly around the world, U.S. and Europe, as the weather gets cold, that it's hard to imagine these bubbles really getting into place. And now we have a situation in London where they, where, you know, the airlines are trying to do an air bridge and a bubble from New York to London. At the same time, the United Kingdom is reporting that as many as 100,000 people a day are getting infected over there. They're not about to drop the ball. They're not about to, to open the door. Uh, at the same time, United Airlines is, is testing a program where they're offering free COVID testing to any passengers on the Newark to London route. And that's an amazing uh, situation, an amazing test case for them. Uh, JetBlue was going to be trying to pull off some of this same uh, pre-testing idea down in the Caribbean because so much of their traffic depends on the Caribbean. But as you point out, the politics of this are what really getting in the way. Unless these COVID rates drop, it's going to be really hard to pull off a air bridge that's really effective. You know, they've been trying it a little bit in the Far East as well, Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, India, but it's they're having the same problem. You're seeing some very high rates of COVID in some of those countries, or you might have it in one country and not the other. And so the politics of it become really, really problematic. The only one that I've heard of that might be working is the bubble between Australia and New Zealand. Yes, that's possible. And, you know, uh, those are two countries. New Zealand in particular has gotten you know, acclaim around the world for what a good job they've done in holding down their COVID rates. But if you're a New Zealander, you might not be so hot on the idea of Aussies coming in if you sense that they're not doing as good a job as you are. And, you know, you mentioned Hawaii. Uh, up until October 15th, they had a strict 14-day quarantine, no exceptions, and everything short of an ankle bracelet with you in the hotel. What they're doing now, uh, Hawaii did reopen on, on October 15th, I think this is brilliant. They want you to stay in your hotel. And what they're, what they're doing while they're looking for secondary testing is anybody who checks into the hotel, they give them a plastic card key, of course, but it's a single-use card key. So if they try to sneak out of their room, they ain't getting back in. They'll know it's them. Yeah, I love that idea of people stuck out in the hallway, unable to get back in their rooms if they try to break quarantine. Um, the Hawaii thing's really interesting. You know, they, you know, you get tested within 72 hours before you leave. But even the Hawaiian government knows that there's going to be a certain number of people that still test positive once they get there, just because of the nature of the testing, which gives rise to that secondary test that you talked about. 
Um, so it shows that these air bridges and that kind of pre-testing idea are great ideas, but there's going to be a little bit of leakage. There's going to be a little you know, number of cases that get through that still of people that are still testing positive, and that could be a problem. I agree. And the real problem in Hawaii is that there's no consistency between the islands. The, the big island doesn't want to get involved in it. Uh, Maui is the only island that's requiring mandating wearing masks. Uh, and then nobody really knows about the secondary tests, what requires it, what, you know, what, what, and, and, and when they're going to do it. So right now there's still a lot of confusion in Hawaii uh, and they're only getting right now about 4,000 visitors a day when a year ago they were up to about 100,000 visitors a day. So it's something that they can manage, but the question is, can you manage it as a traveler, not really knowing where you can go and what you can do? We're talking to Chris Woodard from the uh, from the USA Today, from the USA Today. <laughs> Reminds me when I used to work for Newsweek, people would always introduce me as Peter Greenberg from the Newsweek. So I'm just returning the favor. <laughs> Sorry well, about that, Stephen, Chris. Stephen Colbert back in the day used to always talk about the USA Today. So it's kind of a badge of honor to be the USA Today. Well, then I'm in good company. Hey, you know, it's interesting when you think about one particular issue that's happening at the 30,000 feet these days, and that is people still politicizing masks, still refusing to wear them, uh, and the airlines being put in a position of being sky cops, uh, but without any legal uh, authority to enforce the rule, because there is no rule. The U.S. Department of Transportation has refused to make a rule uh, requiring masks worn on airplanes. Of course, this is the same agency that does make a rule that you have to wear a seatbelt. And if the if the flight attendant asks you to wear the seatbelt and to fasten it, and you don't, you're not only in violation of an order from the flight attendant, you're in violation of federal law. You not only get thrown off the plane, you get arrested. That's not the case with masks. All the airlines have at their disposal is the opportunity to ban you from future flights. And that's what airlines like Delta, American, and United have done I think Delta's banned over 700 people so far from future Delta flights for refusing to wear a mask. That's crazy enough for the adults in the room, uh, or the adults, I should say, acting like children. But here's your segue, Chris. What about kids in masks? Kids in masks are a big problem, Peter. You've got very young children that are required to wear masks, age two and up, on just about every carrier. Now, trying to keep a mask on a two-year-old Trying to get a two-year-old to do anything, much less wear a mask, can be a real problem. So you may have seen, we've had a number of incidents, uh, very highly publicized, oft-times videotaped, of single moms, or, or at least moms traveling alone with their child, getting kicked off of planes because they can't keep the mask on their two-year-old. Oft-times they'll get on the plane, the kid won't settle down, the, the plane is out taxiing, the captain brings the plane right back to the gate. So this has become a big problem for parents, and with the holidays coming, it's going to be a bigger problem. I know, and the question is, with no enforcement ability other than a company policy, the flight attendants are angry because they're being put in an awkward position of having to be sky cops without any kind of legal backup. Um, so what's the solution? The solution is you've got to be sort of a smart parent here you need if you have a if you have a two year old or a three year old or even a four year old that you're that you're fearful isn't going to be good about wearing their mask at least when the flight attendant's present. You need to 
make sure that you drill them ahead of time, um, you know, kind of practice with them, you know, say when we go to the airport, here's what you have to do. Let them pick out their own mask. You know, if they want a Spider-Man mask or a Superman mask or whatever, you know, get them to, to pick out the mask they'll wear. And one traveler who had been thrown off a plane said that she thinks one trick might really work well for parents. That is, have a you know have their drink cup or have their food cup handy. So you know, remember, there's a rule on most of these planes that if you're eating or drinking for a short period, you can you know you can have your mask up. So this person who got thrown off the plane says that she's been back on a number of flights and everything's gone okay, but she says if there's an issue with her child and the mask, she has a drink cup or food cup so she can say to the flight attendant, he's eating and drinking. <laughs> Do I have to bring my food cup and drinking cup too? Yeah, well, as we know, that there have been a number of adults that are getting thrown off of planes. As you pointed out, the no-fly list, in some of those cases, they say, I'm eating and drinking. And they say, well, you know, you can't have you can't be eating and drinking for forty five minutes, or you know, sipping your coffee at, you know, at a few drops at a time. So that's where some of these cases have arisen over eating and drinking issues. And there's one more thing about masks, and the airlines now have put together some of their own rules about what you can uh, wear that would be, you know, uh, basically interpreted as an acceptable mask. You can't show up looking like Darth Vader. Uh, you can't show up with like five different kinds of masks with expiration, or excuse me, I should say expiration valves. Yes, expiration valves are are out, even if you tape them over. You know, I have one of those, uh, uh, you know, really great N95 masks, you know, that I use for woodworking, and I taped over the little exhaust valve on the front. But now I even feel guilty about wearing that around town. And when it comes to airlines, some of them have no gator policies. So those elastic pull-up gaiters that go around your neck that you can pull up, which are very handy, by the way, um, but they don't do a good enough job. And so a number of those are not allowed on planes. I'm going to tell you what I do now on planes. I wear the, uh, you know, the N95 mask, but I wear another N95 mask over it. I wear two. And, uh, you know, that's fantastic. And, you know, also, I, I uh, Peter, a, a practice I know that you go for, you know, get that valve over your head for the, you know, air pointing yeah. down at your face and going full blast. Full blast. My thanks to Chris. Well, it's a new year, a new administration. And what could a Joe Biden presidency do for the airlines, hotels, cruise lines, and travel in general? Will there be more or less regulation, immigration rules, and travel bans? Scott McCartney, travel editor for The Wall Street Journal, has an educated guess or two. Our next guest, a regular on our show, not just on this show, but on our PBS series, The Travel Detective. He's the travel editor for the Wall Street Journal, the Honorable Scott McCartney. How are you, sir? Hello, Peter. See, you like I give you that title, don't you? I, I love being the Honorable. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You're the only one who calls me that, which, which is a little frightening. Well, well, we'll start a trend. We'll start a trend. Uh, yeah. Everybody's sitting around now as we're waiting for the transition between the Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration. And there's a lot of speculation about what Biden is going to do in the new year and in the, in the other three years to follow, especially in terms of world politics, global negotiations, not to mention travel and tourism, because if you want to talk about an industry that's been hit the hardest by the pandemic, it's travel and tourism. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think transportation in general is going to be a key cornerstone of, of the new administration. Uh, we all know that President-elect Biden loves trains, and so there'll be a focus on Amtrak and, and probably high-speed rail um, as well. Uh, but but roads, um, electric cars, a uh, whole, whole bunch of issues, and, and a huge plate of aviation issues waiting for him. Um, consumer issues, things that, that haven't been dealt with, uh, from, you know, finalizing rules on emotional support animals, the refunds that people didn't get uh, during the pandemic, um, to uh, the, the potential need to, to have another bailout of, of the airline industry and, and related uh, transportation companies. And I think, too, the international, the need for international protocols of how we're going to travel in the future, what's going to be required for quarantine, vaccination, um, uh, testing, all that. The United States could lead on that uh, and, and really set, you know, ground rules that would be adopted around the world that would make uh, travel a whole lot easier for people. Well, you know, let's go back to Amtrak Joe for a second. He's not called Amtrak Joe for nothing. He yeah. was taking that train from Wilmington to D.C. just about every day and going back every night. He's always been a fan of the trains. Uh, but back in the Biden administration, let's not forget, they tried to do high-speed rail, and all the governors, well, not all of them, but most of the governors either said, let's wait, or some of them just opted out. Well, you know, it's interesting. Amtrak needs a, a boatload of money. Uh, there are a lot of needs. They've got to build a new tunnel into Manhattan. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's Amtrak is going to suck up a, a whole lot of money. But high-speed rail is is interesting. There, there's a project under construction in California. It's it's kind of the the stupidest, craziest thing you've ever heard. The, it's it's the train from Bakersfield to Merced um, the, in the Central Valley. Uh, the, you know, it would one day it would be hoped that it would be uh, a link in a train from san francisco to los angeles um, but that's a uh, that's a huge stretch and a lot of opposition to it and and so that's difficult there's a private effort in texas uh that's moving forward there there are some signs that you know there could be high speed rail in the united states um much uh, you know it won't be nearly as extensive as what you see in europe or or japan um, but I think um, there, there is the potential to start, and you have a train enthusiast who may see these projects as, um, you know, key for things like climate change. Um, that uh, you know, if we could if we could start moving towards high speed rail and eliminate uh, some, get a lot of cars off the road, get trucks off the road, get uh, reduce the short haul uh, airplane flying, um, then it would, might be good for the environment. You know, it's interesting because it's all about the tracks, isn't it? I mean, one of the reasons why we don't have high-speed rail is because Amtrak doesn't control the tracks. It's controlled by the freight lines, and they don't care about high speed. Uh, that's why Amtrak's always have a problem. Amtrak trains have a problem maintaining a, an on-time performance schedule because they always have to pull over to the side of the, the, the tracks to let some lumbering 100-car freight train go by. we got to figure out that before we even get to the technology, don't we? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, certainly for the long-haul trains, uh, uh, that's been an issue. You know, uh, freight lines would like their trains to move faster, too. Um, so, uh, there, you know, there may be some um, mutual uh, investment here um, that, that could happen uh, to, to really speed things up. Uh, the tracks in the, in the Northeast Corridor 
uh, a lot of it is controlled by Amtrak, and it just hasn't kept up with, uh, you know, there's not the congressional funding that, that's kept up with the infrastructure. So it's in terrible shape, and that needs fixing. Um, so, uh, you know, there are a whole lot of issues with, with tracks. With some of the high-speed rail things, it's, it's, um, it's not just the, the huge expense of building the track and laying all this out, uh, but actually getting the land from landowners who, who don't want a high-speed rail coming through their their farm, their backyard, whatever it might be. Or it could be mayors who, can, who will say, you can have a high-speed train as long as it stops in my town. Yeah. <laughs> and next thing you know, it's a local. Um, let's go a little bit beyond that. I remember in the first two or three weeks of the Trump administration, we heard the words infrastructure week. I haven't yep. heard those words in nearly four years. Is, is this an opportunity now to create jobs if Biden actually focuses on it? Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think this is something that, uh, that you can get bipartisan support for. Um, and now, infrastructure uh, for the Biden administration, I think there will be a lot of focus on, um, on roads, bridges, tunnels, uh, things like that, but also uh, creating a network of electric charging stations for um, uh, electric-powered uh, trucks and cars. Um, I, you know, we've talked about the rail. Um, I think there, you know, there may there are still some big airport projects left to do, and so you may see um, see spending on that. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of infrastructure attention turned to mass transit systems. Um, a lot of the people who are advising uh, the Biden, the incoming administration on transportation, have experience in subways. Um, Metrolink, uh, you know, uh, bus systems as as well. Um, so I think the the notion that um, uh, expand and support mass transit uh, and that can get uh, more cars off the road and do something for the environment. I think that will get a lot of attention. And by the way, the two people considered most likely to get the slot as the the Secretary of Transportation is Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles and. May, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel in uh, in Chicago. Yeah, and both have a lot of uh, mass transit experience. Um, and that's, uh, you know, Mayor Garcetti, uh, you know, taking on um, uh, building uh, uh, train service in, in car-crazy Los Angeles. Um, he, he also, uh, you know, has been involved in a massive rebuilding at Los Angeles International Airport, so he's got... Uh, some experience with airports as well, um, but I think uh, even at the at the lower level among the advisors, you see people with experience with the New York subway system, the Washington subway system, uh, and Chicago mass transit as well. And when uh, Rahm Emanuel was uh, President Obama's chief of staff, he was the number one supporter of high speed rail. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, you know, high speed rail it, it's going to be a tough sell. There is a lot of opposition to it. Um, but, um, you know, the, uh, and the other problem is uh, you, you could go crazy on high-speed rail and you still probably wouldn't have trains rolling before the end of a, first, uh, a four-year term. Um, so, it, you know, you could create a lot of jobs spending money uh, building uh, bridges, overpasses, track, uh, everything you need to, to go into that, um, but you're not going to see... Uh, uh, actual, you're not going to be able to ride trains in the next four years. Uh, and so that, that may be a bit of a deterrent, certainly yep. has been in the past, although if you, if you take a longer view and you say, you know, what's the future of transportation in this country 20 years from now, 
high-speed rail may well be part of that. Scott, when we talk about the global issues of travel, we go back to the first days of the Trump administration, the Muslim ban, then later on as the pandemic started to rage, the ban on other countries and nationalities coming to the United States, this, the, this immigration in general, which obviously involves travel, where do you see the Biden administration going in that direction? Yeah, I, I should say, I think the first thing to probably do is, is impose a federal mask rule uh, on, on airplanes. Uh, so so we'll, all, we'll all have to wear our mask according to uh, federal rules. Um, but, but after that, um, I, you know, it, I, a lot of people have talked about um, uh, reversing the Muslim ban. That, that's probably one thing to, that uh, will be done that will get attention. And, you know, I think the, the really the, uh, the, the meat of the issue here is going to be COVID recovery um, and how we treat international visitors in the future, um, both coming into the, into the country and leaving the country, uh, and, and um, uh, how we, what kind of agreements are made with other countries um, to how U.S. citizens are, are treated um, when they go abroad. Uh, the hope, I think, in the... In, certainly in the aviation industry and and uh, and I think for travelers is that there's some uniform protocol that that's in place um, so that uh, you know your vaccination record is part of your passenger record just like your your trusted traveler number or whatever and it goes into your all your uh, reservations certainly your international reservations just like your passport and uh, and travel becomes a whole lot simpler. Um, because we know what the rules are. Right now, it's, uh, you know, every country's got their own rules, and they may be quite different. Um, it's not so much an issue right now because there's just no demand for international travel, but that's going to change. And, uh, and I think there is a leadership opportunity here for the United States to say, um, uh, this is what makes sense. Um, you want to, you certainly want to uh, guard against the spread of um, a virus, uh, but you also need to um, uh, make it possible for people to do business and people to uh, go on vacation and do things. And uh, there's going to have to be a set of rules that makes that happen. Speaking of rules, you know, you can't not wear your seatbelt on the plane because it violates a U.S. Department of Transportation rule. You're violating a federal law. We're still waiting for the Department of Transportation to make a rule about wearing masks. They haven't done it. And that's what I think you're talking about, Scott. But that's yeah. just on an airplane. What about a federal rule of wearing masks if you're driving your car between Alabama and Georgia? Well, it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, yeah, you, you could make a federal rule. The president, can, the president can issue a federal rule. But, but airplanes are one of the, uh, really one of the few places where the federal government has that kind of jurisdiction. Um, the federal government's not out there on the interstate highway enforcing a mask rule when you when you drive from Georgia to Alabama, uh, but the federal government does control um, uh, interstate air travel, and uh, and so that is one place where it could make a difference. Now you also you know you can impose mask rules for federal office buildings and facilities and and things like that, uh, but um, uh, air travel that's that's where they can really make a difference. So we'll change the rule from interstate flight to avoid prosecution to interstate flight to avoid wearing a mask. How about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, then it becomes the old Southwest question. Well, well, does that apply? Do you have to wear a mask if you're flying from Dallas to Houston? So you never leave the state. 
so it's not interstate travel. <laughs> and, and I think the lawyers would say the answer to that is is yes, that uh, that that now all air travel is regulated by the federal government, and so. Um, uh, the state of Texas doesn't have jurisdiction um, over airlines. Uh, the federal government does. And the uh, the thing that strikes me as somewhat ironic is here you have Delta Airlines announcing they've banned more than 500 people from their flights, you know, a no-fly list because they refuse to wear a mask. The one thing they haven't told you is how long does that ban last? Is it just for the till st- the party's over, or is it a lifetime ban? And most of them have said it's till the party's over. Um, it's you know until uh, until the pandemic is over and you don't and you're not required to wear a mask anymore. Um, you know that hasn't proven for a lot of people that's not a, a huge penalty. Um, some people are only taking one particular flight and they don't want to wear a mask, or uh, they don't really care if they fly Delta again. They'll go fly somebody else. It's um, you know the mask enforcement has been difficult for airlines and and um, um, compliance has been spotty. In, in some situations, um, most you know, most everybody does it, but it only takes one to sort of ruin the flight. Uh, not to not to mention not to that. mention and not to mention you are allowed to take your mask off to drink or to eat. But the question is, how long does your meal last? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's true, and it's a it's a real problem for flight attendants, and, and I think um, they very much would like to see a federal rule where you can say, you know. Hey, if you don't do what we say then on on the mask, then this is the fine you're going to get. Or this is the, you know, or you're going to get on a no-fly list for all airlines, not just uh, not just one. My thanks to Scott, to Chris Woodyard, and to Gene Sloan. And my thanks to you for listening to this Eye on Travel podcast. For more conversations with the leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for updates on all the breaking travel news, that's easy. Just sign on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Eye on Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.